Uh, hey, yeah, this so I'm Jeremy, uh, and this is Rachel DeCruz. Uh, we're we're partners in in life and uh, and working on some creative project. We're uh, we're really excited to be here talking with you. Yeah, that's good. So tell us a little bit more. Just give us a little overview about the Panola project. You want to go for that? Sure. Yeah. So the Panola Project is a short film that follows the work of Dorothy Oliver in her community in Panola, Alabama, where she's working tirelessly to ensure that her full community is vaccinated and has all of the information um, that they need to be able to get vaccinated. And so the film chronicles her journey and through her incredible, incredible efforts, she was able to get 99% of her community vaccinated in a state with one of the lowest vaccination rates in the country. Very good. Um, definitely a story that needs to be told. So tell me, how did you learn about Dorothy's work in Panola and what actually drew you to this project? Yeah, you know, I think we were we were really, um, you know, it, we all know it's been it's been a rough few years. It's just been one thing after another. And uh, we were we were living in Alabama at the time we'd been, you know, this is a, a year ago now, and it had already been a year of the pandemic. And then miraculously, oh my God, we have vaccines. Like there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And then, you know, people aren't, right? Like there's there's a lot of people who aren't getting the vaccine, whether they, they aren't able to, or they are, have fears about it or whatever that is. And all of a sudden it just feels like we're kind of like back in some, some downward spiral that we can all uh, relate to. And, and so, you know, it was a really conscious effort on our part to find a story that could bring us hope and and bring the world hope. Um, a lot of my work in the past has dealt with with some really hard issues, and and sometimes you know it, it's important I think to tell those those hard issues that are sometimes like just kind of depressing. And I was like, I can't do this right now. I need a story that is going to kind of lift us up. And, and we read an article about this woman who um, was kind of running a whole, like her own vaccination campaign in uh, her community. And she was doing it all from this convenience store. She was running out of a mobile home. It sounded just like, just the kind of story we wanted to tell. We, we drove out um, like an hour and a half or so to, to go visit her and, uh, yeah, she was she was kind of amazing from the beginning. We were just so inspired and taken by her from the the first moment we walked in that door. Good. So, tell me more about your experience working with Dorothy. What kind of insights did she give you into the community and her initiative to get everybody vaccinated? Yeah, Dorothy is a superhero. <laughs> She's just like an incredible, incredible woman, deeply driven, deeply committed to her community and that it really comes across in the film. And so, you know, I think this film wouldn't have been possible without her. Obviously she's kind of the main character that we're following, but also just the vaccination rate would not be as high as it is in Panola if it were not for Dorothy's efforts. And a lot of that is because of the deep relationships and trust that she has with community members. And so because Dorothy is so well-respected, because everybody knows each other in Panola, it's a really tight-knit community, um, that gave us a level of access that I think would have been really challenging for us to get if it weren't for her. And I was, you know, throughout the whole time that we worked with Dorothy, continued to just be amazed at 
her, like her persistence and her ability to just be like, we're just going to keep going until we get every single person in this community vaccinated. And even when we had some, you know, hard conversations or conversations that maybe didn't go as she expected or as we hoped, it really felt like she just was like, okay, I'm just going to dust myself off. I'm going to go get some sleep. We're going to wake up tomorrow. We're going to try again. So that spirit was really, um, for me personally, was something that I feel like I took away from from the, the work with her. Yeah, and, and you know, I think it's so true. The same kind of level of persistence and that like uh, dogged effort that, that Dorothy takes in the film to get everyone vaccinated, right? Like she's doing that for the film too. <laughs> she's in many ways like a co-producer there where it's like, we're gonna go do this thing. And like, you can't stand in Dorothy's way. If she says we're doing it, we're doing it. So, um, so yeah, she was a huge part of, of making the film come to fruition. Yeah, so when you started working and researching on this project, when did you know, did you have a strategy in place, I should say, to make this film? And when did you know that you actually had a story to tell here? It's a, it's a great question. You know, I think we, uh, we, we've got some longer term projects that, uh, you know, we're working on, we're super excited about, but it takes time, it takes resources, you know, we're applying for grants, we're trying to get partnerships and support and doing pitches and all that stuff. And, and it just, it takes so much time. And meanwhile, there's a pandemic that makes traveling difficult and makes literally doing anything like beyond getting up out of bed and even getting up out of bed, it makes that difficult too. And, and so I think we, we're just really into this idea of like, what's a film we can tell right now? We don't have to ask anybody else's permission. Nobody else needs to like come on board at this point. Like we've got a camera, we've got the two of us, let's go do something. And this was a very different process than a lot of the other projects I've worked on where, you know, I think we had, we, we would keep brainstorming, what do we need to tell this story? but there was way less of that planning stage than I'm used to. There was way less of that gestation phase that you have to do as you're pitching it to other people. And, and it was way more of kind of an organic process of just like, let's go and see what happens. And then things just kind of kept feeling like they were falling into place. And we're like, oh, you know, when, was it our first day filming when she uh, kind of drives up on LaDenzel's lawn and, and he's hesitant to get the vaccine? Um, and Dorothy has this amazing, you know, 45 minute conversation with him and, and by the end of it convinces him like to sign up and get the shot. I mean, it was incredible to see that. We're like, oh, okay, maybe we've got something here. And then, um, you know, I don't want to give too much away from the film, but we, we show up on vaccine day. She, she managed to get uh, a vaccine clinic to show up in Panola, Alabama, it's a super rural community. Um, and otherwise it's 40 miles away to the closest uh, place to get a shot. And a lot of people don't have cars. So it was like this huge deal that she was bringing clinics to Panola, Alabama. So we're filming that day. And then, you know, this drama happens where, you know, it's unclear if who's gonna show up that day. And, and I think after that, Right. There, there were moments where like, oh, God, this is really not going to work. Uh, we're feeling as stressed as I think hopefully uh, that comes across in the film as well. But but in the end, at the end of, of, of filming that day, we're like, oh, we actually have um, kind of a, a full arc for a short film here. So 
uh, yeah, so yeah, it was a really interesting experience to just be open to whatever, whatever the world would bring us. Yeah, very interesting. Um, honestly, when I was watching the film myself, I thought it was really cool how it opened with a shot of people riding horses. Um, so just speaking to the aspect of it being a small town, from the moment it opens the film, you kind of already get the sense of it being like this really isolated community because you know, it's 2022, people don't ride horses to go to the convenience store. But most of the US is made up of these small and rural communities. So how would you say this documentary brings focus to the ongoing push to vaccinate people across the country in communities like Panola? Yeah, well, I think it highlights the, for us, one of the things that was really important for us to emphasize throughout the arc of the film is just the, the structural barriers in place for Panola residents in terms of being able to get the vaccine, right? Jeremy mentioned the nearest hospital is almost 40 miles away. A lot of people didn't have cars. They didn't have access to internet to be able to sign up online to get the shots. They didn't like even know when the shots were available. Um, so there were a, a whole host of barriers that you know aren't unique to Panola, are very much kind of embedded in the fabric of rural America. And I would say like even more so in rural black communities, right? So I think for us, we were really just wanting to be able to show that so that we can also alongside that, alongside all of those challenges also show the ways that Dorothy and Ms. Jackson were really stepping in to fill the gaps, right? From a lack of investment by the government. And we see that all the time across the country, the ways that black women are just stepping up each and every day to protect and care for their communities. And so we wanted to be able to share that story of hope while also opening people's eyes a bit to the realities that people are facing in rural communities. Yeah, I, I think it really speaks to, right, access is a real issue that we're going around with Dorothy as she's trying to get people to sign up for this pop-up clinic in town. And yet, you know, there were people who had fears, there were people who had concerns, and there were even a few who were just like, really, I don't want to get this. But for the, the majority of the folks, it was just like, I don't have a way to, I, I don't have time to get there. I don't have transportation to get there that's like really far away. And so this issue of access is, is hugely important. And then meanwhile, we've got solutions all around us, you know, in the Dorothy's and Miss Jackson's in communities across the country who are doing this work, right, out of love for their own community. Um, and, and imagine what, what they could do with proper support, with proper resources, like that would be that would be incredible. And if we're, we're looking for hope and we're looking for a way out of this, then I think that's that's a good place to look. Yeah, love for the community definitely goes a long way. And on a similar note, um, you guys spoke about how you did live in Alabama for a time, correct? Mm -hmm. In Alabama, along with many other states in what is known as the Deep South, they often rank very low when it comes to many different health metrics. Mm -hmm. So when you were living in Alabama, what sense did you get of why your state, that state and other states in the South were falling behind in many health aspects, especially as it pertains to the ongoing COVID pandemic? That's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think like 
it, well, so let's take Panola, for example, right? It's so rural. When you think about, it's like, like we talked about the hospital being really far away. So even people being able to like get and access care when they're sick, when they need to go to the doctor is kind of this whole ordeal. We think about people's ability to access healthy food that's like close by, right? And that's a challenge too for rural communities. So there's all of these ways that institutional and structural racism are shaping the lives of so many people across our country. Um, and those barriers tend to be invisibilized, right? There's like a concerted effort when we're talking about racism to really focus the conversation on individual acts of racism instead of talking about the ways that racist policies are shaping outcomes for people. Yeah, and, and you know, I do think too, obviously misinformation is a huge issue and and the way to combat that is not to get on Twitter and yell at people. Um, like, Even though like, we might want to. <laughs> shockingly, that doesn't seem to move the needle too much. Um, but we can learn from somebody like Dorothy, who listens to people, right? Like she already has this deep relationship with folks. That's key, right? As our as our communities and our um, relationships with people in real space fray more and more like we lose that. But here's the power that exists, you know, when we do have that strong sense of community, uh, you know, she would be able to just have these really intense conversations and she would take people's questions seriously and she would find out information and be like, I'll get back to you on this. I'll find out somebody who has the answer for you for this if I don't know it. Um, and, and and meanwhile, she's like prodding and she's joking and it feels like joyful and it's not, you know, I, I certainly I think, you know, we all want to just be like, no, just do this thing, right? Like, I'm right, you're wrong. Like, I'm going to just going to out of sheer will and use my anger to convince you that that I'm that like you have to agree with me and that's not going to work. But if you show up with love and compassion and respect then and persistence because Dorothy is nothing if not persistent um like you can you can make real change and and so uh yeah I mean the the issues that are causing low vaccination rates in in southern states is uh are myriad but I do think that going back to that community and those real relationships is one of the key things that we can do to to try to get those numbers up yeah, very insightful. Um, this next question is for Jermaine. So Jermaine, when composing the score for this documentary, how did you try to capture the, I guess, the environments of Panola, it being a small rural community? Sure. So, I mean, thanks to the two great filmmakers here, they offered um, a very excellent reference point. And so when we first connected and had a conversation, I just really asked about what it was they were going for in terms of the feel and how the music would just sort of help match the story. Um, and like I said, they had these really great references in place. And so it was a matter of just really trying to match the storytelling, the feeling, the tone of voice, um, the emotion that was there. And just, I usually use that as the foundation. And so from there, you just kind of really just add different layers to it until it feels natural. So what's being said, it doesn't conflict, it, it actually complements. And so you know it when you hear it, I suppose. And I think that's what we try to work together on. Yeah, I definitely hear you on that. And in the sense of you know it when you hear it, 
I think for me, one of the standout moments in terms of the music was at the end when the credits start rolling and Dorothy and the gentleman there basically dancing on the front lawn, kind of going back to a conversation that they had earlier in the film. And I thought that that was great because, you know, you watch the documentary and it's dealing with these heavy topics, but then at the end, it's kind of like, you know, it's like a real happy scene. So when you add things like this to film scores, is that part of like your own personal touch? Well, I, I think it was, um, it was, I, it was my way of interpreting both the filmmakers, uh, their, their direction again. So it seems like in, in the, in the edit, naturally, that's how the film ended. But I think, you know, I just did my best to try to match that energy and, and match the dancing and their movement with something that felt like kind of bright and optimistic, I suppose, um, like, like almost celebrating. Um, and so it was really just trying to pick the right sounds to, to match that, that ending. Yeah. How would you describe the experience of working with Jeremy and Rachel? It was great. Um, we, we were able to, well, so, you know, like, because of COVID, obviously, but also just being in different places, I, I was very, um, you know, grateful for the opportunity, one, but it was um, surprisingly easy considering, you know, most of our meetings were on Zoom or, or over the phone. Um, and the fact that we were able to, you know, get it done, send files back and forth, references through email, um, it just felt like a very, like, smooth process. And, um, and I felt like, you know, yeah, despite not being in the same room or in the same studio, for the most part, we were still able to, to get it done in, in a good way. Very nice, very nice. So now I want to talk a little bit about community. So anybody can answer this question. Tell me why you feel it's important for a space like Sundance to exist in the physical sense when people are actually able to meet filmmakers and everybody come together, and also in the virtual sense, like it is this year. Yeah, I mean, obviously community is so hugely important. That's what our film's all about. Um, we're super grateful for Sundance. We're so excited. This is our, our first film at Sundance. Um, you know, not gonna lie, we're bummed. We're not, you know, schlepping around the cold uh, snow of Park City right now, but um, but, you know, any way to connect is great. Any way to build connections is great. Um, I do think ultimately, you know, just like we see in the film, right, there nothing takes the place of being in space with people, like in a real embodied space, right? Being able to, to reach out and, uh, you know, just like touch each other, right? To like be able to see each other's body mo movements and see more than somebody from the chest up, right? Like it's a totally different experience. Uh, so, so very much looking forward to future iterations where things are are able to get back to to some semblance of of normal. Um, but but like kudos to Sundance for continuing to find a way to, to make such a huge impact in the film world. And, and right, it's such a hugely important space to um, build support and to, to um, you know, build momentum for films, to find new voices, um, to promote artists. I mean, it's, it's really, you know, it's really a privilege to be part of it. That's good. 
Um, this is for Jermaine. So Sundance obviously has more components to it than just like the film aspect, music being one of them. So how do the ASCAP Music Cafe, how does that help other composers basically network and find more work? Hmm. Well, I can only speak on the ASCAP participation of it just with the context of this year. Um, I would say that what's most relevant in terms of how we connect so far has been sort of the introduction and the visibility of other composers that have kind of come to us or um, seeing the other people who've sort of been spotlighted this year. And I think through that, um, individuals have made themselves accessible and we've all kind of naturally started to communicate with each other and reach into each other's DMs, like, oh, congratulations on this film, that film. And so just by them um, very simply um, having a spotlight on the composers featuring the festival has already sort of planted the seed of some organic chemistry and networking to take place virtually. And do you feel as though that even when Sundance isn't virtual anymore, the interaction will still be the same? Or do you maybe expect it to be differently? Hmm. Yeah, I, I think, um, I, I suppose uh, it could increase a bit. And I imagine that many of us composers would um, continue to support each other or, or tune into what we're all working on for inspiration or even collaboration. There have been a, a few other composers that are interested in collaborating. And so I think um, initially just having the opportunity to be exposed and sort of have some sort of visibility sort of helps and people can see themselves in you and sort of see similar styles and they might see something they like from afar and, and they might look um, toward you and vice versa for, for just expanded opportunities. Very good, very good. So I wanna ask you again, Jermaine, well, help you speak more about yourself in this interview. So tell me about how you became interested in composing music for film and how you actually got into this industry? Sure. So um, I come from a musical family. Uh, both parents were musicians. In particular, my dad was um, a, a jazz drummer and he played with many, many musicians throughout his life professionally. And so that music was always something just in our home and in the family. Um, and, and just always surrounded by it. I made the decision to produce and compose in my early teenage years. And I always um, wanted to pursue, I guess you can say, television, commercial opportunities, even from the beginning. And so how it all started is kind of funny because this was the VHS DVD era. And there was a time where you had to pause press pause at the end to copy, or at least this, is, this was my method, was uh, copying down the name of the music supervisors and the production companies, like literally writing it all out. But um, shockingly, you know, that actually led to like the first placement year, many, many years ago. But it was a matter of really just this, that old school sort of cold calling approach. Um, so that was my introduction, as well as my older brother who composes introduction into just getting our music out there, like the um, CDs, Sharpie, mailing all out all over the place. But fast forward, um, I've continued to produce for many recording artists, other musicians, 
um, on their albums and compilations and so forth. And so, um, yeah, I just try to stay diverse in my work and I try to work with as many types of people as I can. Very good, very good. So now I wanna pivot back to Jeremy and Rachel. Similar question, how did you guys get into the film industry? What inspired you to become filmmakers? I can go first. <laughs> so this is my first film. Um, I, I'd never made a film before. You know, I've always been, my background is in sort of racial justice organizing work. And I've always been really interested in communications work and storytelling as well. So that's kind of been a part of my career. And then I started dating <laughs> a documentary filmmaker. Um, and, you know, I think film has always felt like a really natural medium for me to be able to both share complex stories and also get to a level of depth and empathy and like connection in a way that's hard to um, in other formats. And so I've always been really interested in film, although I, you know, didn't know much about the technical background. And so it was just when we were, you know, starting to work on this project and we have another feature length film that we're working on as well, just the ability to kind of bring some of the skills and tools that I've learned both through organizing and kind of the importance of relationship building, but also from the storytelling parts of my work into a new field feels really exciting to me. Yeah, and I think I've been drawn to storytelling also from, from a really young age, um, like like both of, of you guys too. Um, it, was, it was like a, a few years ago that my father found this old like plastic cassette tape that I had recorded with my great grandmother when I was like seven years old um and so like I was doing an interview then and you know I had a like tiny squeaky voice but uh <laughs> clearly was like wicked excited about it from from a young age and that that bug has just kind of never left me you know I, I don't know what I was thinking at that age but then I wanted to be a writer and then um I don't know I, I guess maybe there was an old video camera laying around at the house and I started playing with that and I was like oh this is so fun and um you know I also started getting really into politics and, and social justice issues and the merging of that with film kind of led me down this this documentary path Jeremy, on your website, in your about page, I did look at it. <laughs> it describes you as a filmmaker that explores race, class, and society's collective buried traumas. How did you, I guess, settle on this topic of, you know, films to, to um, excuse me, to direct? Or was this like a gradual transition? Yeah, it's a it's a great question that um, maybe could use many years of psychoanalysis or something. But I, I mean, honestly, it feels like like our jobs as artists are to are kind of like twofold, right? On the one hand, we need to be really following our passion, and like that is at the gut level, right? Like for me, it's there's always been stories that that grab a hold of me and, and won't let go. And I become obsessed with them and I, I can't do anything but work on them. Um, and, and, you know, then after I had been making a, a bunch of films, you're able to kind of look at all these things that you're drawn to and be like, what is happening here? And I think that brings to the, the other important thing we need to do as artists and figure out like, 
who are we? Where, what have we experienced in our life that has kind of led us to where we are and to the types of stories we wanna tell and the frame, uh, the, the, the viewpoint from which we tell it. And, you know, the first film that I was drawn to was, was along the US-Mexico border. It was about uh, this kind of like homegrown vigilante movement um, that was, was organizing to keep um, migrants from coming into the country. And I don't know, right, like, I don't know why I became obsessed with this issue, or I didn't know why. And it, it was literally like a few years ago when I re-listened to that tape um, that was with my great grandmother, who, you know, this is my first interview, I'm seven years old, I'm young and impressionable. And she's telling me, you know, she's, uh, my family's Jewish, and, and she had escaped from Russia under the cover of night um, as a child. And she's talking about how she was afraid that there were like armed militias that, you know, she was afraid that if they heard them moving around that they would, they would find her and ca capture her and kill her. And, you know, obviously that's something that, that sunk into, uh, right, like who I am from such a young age. And, and so being able to suddenly see that connection, I was like, oh, like, holy, like, of course, that's why I was drawn to this story. Um, and, you know, I think there's a lot of other uh, issues that have have made me into the filmmaker that I am, um, but but like ultimately it's about wanting to to talk about these moments from our own past, from our country's past that like we have to deal with if we want to find any way forward. Definitely, Rachel, your background in social justice. Tell me how that affected your ideas as a filmmaker yeah so i think whenever we're telling stories um about race it's complex and needs to be nuanced and it needs we need to be as filmmakers we need to be really intentional and thoughtful about what story it is we're telling and what story it is we're trying to tell because otherwise you know stereotypes and people's bias just sink in and it's like this self-perpetuating cycle so i think for me the biggest piece is always and I talked about this a little bit, but it's like, what are the structural barriers? What are the institutional and structural barriers that we're trying to excavate for people, that we're trying to give people a window into that they might not notice otherwise, right? Because it feels like it's just happening, but it's actually by design, right? <laughs> We've made a series of really intentional choices throughout our country's history that have led us exactly to this moment and that have led us to the disparities that we see in our communities today. And so instead of you know, trying to pretend that that's not true, how do we actually create a pathway for people to be able to understand that? And how do we share stories that allow us to explore that um, in ways that kind of connect with different subsets of the population, with different people in different ways? So I think the biggest thing for me is always this, like it's both the intentionality and then it's like, what is the, the structural story what, that's sort of operating maybe under the surface that we need to help bring to the surface for people to be able to see more clearly. Yeah, and that is the beauty of film, honestly, the way it can explore so many different diverse topics and communicate it to people in a way that is dynamic and exciting. So winding down here, I want you guys to speak on some of the future projects that you have in the works. Yeah, so I can talk first about the one that we're working on together and then Jeremy has like 
50 other projects that he's working on. But so the feature length film that we're working on together, it's called Nine. It follows Gerald Hankerson. He's a black 52 year old community leader who's really fighting to get his former cellmate out of prison while also simultaneously working to pass legislation that would reinstate parole in Washington state. And I have a you know, have known Gerald for over a decade. We're dear friends. We used to work together. And the story is really about the enduring bonds, the friendship between Gerald and his kind of father figure who's still currently in prison. And it explored, it's going to explore the ways in which uh, their friendship and this relationship is actually giving them the power to push back against an overtly oppressive criminal justice system. So we're really excited about that project. We're sort of in the early stages in development and hope to have um, more to come soon. Yeah. And then yeah, like Rachel said, I've got too many projects um, that are, are kind of all in those, those are mostly in those early stages. Um, I'm working kind of along that, the theme we were talking about, I'm uh, working on a film about an ex-white supremacist who's trying to come to terms with his, his violent past. Um, he's kind of re, he's found a new identity as a, a traveling circus performer, um, but but meanwhile, the film is really kind of exploring the differences between concealment and kind of covering up one's past and, and actually dealing with it and what is what is kind of true transformation uh, look like. Uh, I'm also working on a film that explores the long-term effects of the family separation policy at the border, which again ties back to um, you know, my my family's past and and kind of my my body of work. And um and yeah, also working uh, on my first personal film with my brother that for the first time, it's like looking at some of our own kind of unresolved past trauma um, that deals with mental illness through the frame of, of our shared love of horror films. So uh, kind of all over the place, but excited for all yeah, of Yeah, definitely. <laughs> A lot of good uh, projects that you have in the works here. Definitely yeah, looking thanks. forward to seeing what comes out of them. So uh, I have one last question here. This is for Jermaine, actually. <laughs> so this is not, <laughs> this is more of like a joke question, I guess you can call it. <laughs> I want to know, how did you get the nickname Mainframe? <laughs> um, so um, at the time, Matrix One came out. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, my older brother and I are like always into sci-fi, computerish type things. And I think there's this is it's a really quick line. I don't know if it's Morpheus or someone. They just say like something, something that's in the mainframe. Mm -hmm. And it just stuck because Jermaine, mainframe. And um, yeah, we were just always into like just kind of like nerds, like urban nerds, and just like into this stuff. And so it's like that's your name, mainframe. So it came from um my older brother who goes by the name Outsource and he produces like electronic music. Um so he's like, your mainframe, I'm outsource. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah. Rachel had never seen Ma The Matrix, so we just did a marathon. Uh, so now, wow. now she can get the reference. <laughs> well, it was definitely great having you guys. And the Panola Project is definitely a really inciting film. And it definitely gives a lot of great insight into the community in Alabama and also small and rural communities across the country. And I definitely think it speaks a lot to the feelings that people have about getting vaccinated, whether it is their reservations or holding out to it or their ability to not even have access to vaccines. So this was definitely a great film that needed to be told, especially in 2022. 
where we're about to approach two years of dealing with this pandemic. And I want to thank you guys for putting this project out there and giving a voice to someone like Dorothy, who otherwise wouldn't have been able to share her story with the rest of the world. So thank you guys, definitely. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. This was a great, great conversation. Yes, and we loved having you. <laughs>